We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. Words are powerful and can be dangerous. Nowhere is that more evident than on social media platforms where hateful speech is spewed and sometimes spreads at alarming speed. Can it be silenced? If so, how? In a few minutes, we'll hear about Shine a Light, a national effort to dispel and counter anti-Semitic language and behavior that's been on the rise. First, we're joined by Imran Ahmed. He's the founder and CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. The nonprofit, based in the U.K. and Washington, D.C., works to quell hate and disinformation by going after the online platforms that enable its global spread. Welcome to On the Record, Imran. Thank you. The Internet is everywhere and instantaneous. What methods does the Center for Countering Digital Hate use to chip away at the spread of hate speech and disinformation? Well, I think our our most fundamental tool is just is show and tell. So to show people evidence of the harms being produced on those platforms, the way in which bad actors are able to act with impunity, can use social media platforms as a force multiplier, an incredibly cheap tool to allow them to spread hatred. How disinformation actors, snake oil salesmen, can use these platforms to spread disinformation about public health and sell their own false cures. And of course, how politicians can use it to spread hate, uh, which they then weaponize for their own electoral gain. And But you say the most fundamental tool is to show it. Obviously, people, to some extent, have gotten used to it. How do you show it to users of these platforms to make them aware? I think what... I think what's really important is to understand that this isn't just about individual bits of hate. It's about the net effect of the amplification of so much hate into our consciousness. And one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is the way that platforms act to amplify the most extreme voices for commercial reasons because that's what keeps us engaged, it's what keeps us on the platform, it's what they've realized over years of operating these platforms are that essentially moral outrage and stuff that morally outrages us is the stuff that keeps us there, it makes us respond to it. We wait to see if other people have engaged with our response to that hate, have liked our side or their side more. It becomes a, a sort of a tool of, of of keeping us engrossed in a constant drama in which hate and disinformation are, are, the, are the main characters. And what that means is that we are normalizing at a staggeringly rapid rate that, that this notion that hate and disinformation are normal, when in fact they, they simply are not. They, they run against the grain of what our societies have been pushing towards inexorably, albeit with in fits and starts, over decades and centuries now. Let me pick up on that idea of normalizing. I mean, recently, Ye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, tweeted an image of a swastika blended with a Jewish star of David shortly after talking about his admiration uh, for Adolf Hitler. Basketball star Kyrie Irving appeared to promote an anti-Semitic film on social media. What What is the danger of big celebrities like these making hateful statements, in this case, anti-Semitic statements? 
I, I, look, there's, there's two things here. First of all, I think that anti-Semitism is sometimes treated as though it isn't a repugnant racism that needs to be challenged at every moment in our society. It surely, especially for Europeans, after the 20th century, it cannot be clearer the danger of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, the same ones that were used to innovate and um, as a mobilizing ideology behind the Nazi genocide of Jewish people in Europe. But also, I think what it shows is that there is there is this sense that for some reason, if people do it online, that there shouldn't be any consequences. And it, it is to me a weird, almost grotesque idea that there should be a space in which we should allow hate to go unchallenged, that there should be no consequences for it. That's that's freedom of speech. It is, of course, someone's freedom of speech to call me a uh, an insulting word in real life, but there would be consequences. People would intervene. I might intervene. If you were doing it in a work meeting, you'd lose your job. If you did it in a pub, the landlord would kick you out. If you did it in most circumstances in life, behaved in that way, you know, that that is something that would attract negative consequences. And I think one of the one of the real challenges that we have is just reminding people that there are victims of hatred, whether online or offline. It has a damaging effect on our society. And this notion that there can be no consequences for behavior online. I think you're seeing both the minimization of anti-Semitism comparatively, but also you are seeing this notion that online is somehow different. And frankly, it should not. This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cast speaking with Imran Ahmed, founder of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. We're talking about how the nonprofit combats the spread of hate speech and the dangers it poses online. Last week, CCDH released a blog post about quote, a Musk bump, close quote, on Twitter since Elon Musk took the reins of that platform. Talk about the Musk bump. Well, quite simply, um, our researchers went and tested Elon Musk's claim to his advertisers, the, the advertisers that fund his platform, the majority of the revenues for Twitter come from advertisers, and it takes very little money from users. It is an advertising platform. It's not a free speech platform. And his first message was to them saying, I've brought hate speech down. What we found was that, in fact, there had been a substantial increase in hate speech on his platform. And why that happened is quite clear. Mr. Musk put up the bat signal, did he not, when he when he bought the platform to people who spread hatred, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia. And he said, we are now a free speech platform that's open to business to even to abusive people. And my, my, didn't they respond accordingly because they flooded back on. We saw a tripling in the use of the N word within uh, after Mr. Musk took over compared to the entire year, the average for the entire year beforehand. And that research, which we put onto our blog and was featured in, you know, in news reports all, all around the world, clearly annoyed Mr. Musk because he responded by saying this is all much ado about nothing. I think what he is doing is, um, is, is extremely dangerous because he's both claiming to have, have claiming victory and therefore seeming one can infer that he recognizes that hatred is a bad thing but at the same time allowing the proliferation of hatred on this platform because he's trying to attract more users frankly. 
So how does the Center for Countering Digital Hate go after someone like Elon Musk? How, how do you hold him accountable? Well, first of all, we got the truth out there very fast. I mean, it was featured on the front pages of newspapers around the world and in news bulletins and on shows like this. But also, we've been able to go to regulators because the truth is that in the past few years, there has been a sea change in the broad understanding that people have that online harms do have an offline cost. I think we've won that battle to persuade people that online harms aren't just online, they have a real world effect. January the 6th was a very good example of that. The second is that these companies know that there's a problem. It's not that they can't do something about it. It's that they aren't willing to do something about it. They're not amoral, they're immoral in the way that they behave. And I think having won those two battles, what we are seeing is legislation being passed around the world. The European Union, for example, has a Digital Services Act, which actually directly addresses the question of the proliferation of hate on platforms that are widely used and the failure by platforms to enforce their own rules. The United Kingdom has legislation, Australia has legislation, New Zealand, even California has legislation now starting the process of of, of forcing these companies to behave in the way that they state they will in their community standards. And what we've been able to do is provide the evidence that these platforms are failing to abide by their promises their promises to users because those community standards are not just our responsibilities. I go on that platform, I sign up to the community standards, I don't behave in a hateful way, I don't spread disinformation. But at the same time, that should be a corollary reciprocal right that I enjoy to have a platform in which I don't have to face hate every time I'm on there. And I myself, I'm I'm not white, I'm, you know, sort of a pale brown, I suppose. And, um, you know, I, I've faced racial hatred in my life. Of course I have, like any person of colour. But um, I should not have to expect that a barrier to my engagement in public discourse is in fact that I have to wade over a tidal wave of abuse first. And the failure of these platforms to respect the civil rights of minority users, of people of colour, of women, of gay people, of trans people, to allow them to fully be able to re- express their freedom of speech without having to uh, face a tidal wave abuse, other legislators around the world have acted on that. And I would urge that in, in the US at the moment, we don't have those tools because of very restrictive legislation, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act 1996, which mean that it's very difficult for people to enforce their civil rights and to be able to deal with harms that may be caused to them through the courts. Let me let me interrupt you, Trace, the lack of such legislation in the U.S. to the 1996 law, not to the First Amendment? Well, I mean, of course, people have the right to speech, but people don't have the right to harm others. And so th- there is still civil liability for harm that you may cause through negligence. And at the moment, individuals may be responsible for that, but the platforms that accrue and amplify malignant content never can be. And that's not the First Amendment that that protects them. It's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This law that was passed while the internet was young, trying to protect a nascent American industry, And that said, actually, as long as you are a good Samaritan, you clean up your platform, you cannot be held liable for other people's content on your website. 
now that you have these enormous businesses that have internalized the idea that they should have legal impunity for the content that they amplify, but also moral impunity as well, they now demand no consequences, that actually that law has become a real problem. And we have research coming out in the coming days which shows how a Chinese platform like TikTok will amplify you know, eating disorder and pro-suicide content to young girls. Should that mm. should they be liable for that or not? What can the average person do when they come across hate speech or disinformation online? So we would recommend three things. The first thing is do what you need to do to make sure that it doesn't affect you. And that often means ignoring it, blocking it, trying, you know, ensuring that you are curating your personal online spaces. The second thing is that it's time to start talking to our legislators about it. Like, what are you doing to ensure that companies can't essentially amplify the worst among us and allow for the spread of hate and disinformation in our society? And the final thing that we can do is, you know, for some people, it will be just delete the app. I mean, like, do you really need to have access to the fire hose of nonsense that is Twitter at the moment? You know, go out and have a walk because honestly, this world is wonderful. You know, go and meet normal people. They are nice. The social media is a very distorted lens on the world. And, ca and I think that the accrued impact of people looking through that distorted lens has been to the detriment of our society and our democracy over the past decade. Imran, I appreciate your insights and, and this advice. Thank you. Thank you. Imran Ahmed founded and leads the Center for Countering Digital Hate. We have links to more information and to the research we referenced at the On the Record page at WIPR.org. Short break on the record when we're back. How are local Jewish organizations working to combat anti-Semitism? I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking today about the rise in hate speech on social media platforms and the repercussions of that language. We just heard what the Center for Countering Digital Hate, based in the U.S. and the U.K., does to combat hate speech online. Joining us now to discuss local efforts is Howard Libet, Executive Director of the Baltimore Jewish Council, an agency of the Associated Jewish Federation of Baltimore. Libet also serves on Maryland's Domestic Terrorism Task Force, a group formed by the Maryland General Assembly to explore ways to combat extremism. Welcome to On the Record, Howard. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What is the Baltimore Jewish Council? So we are the advocacy arm of the associated and the broader Jewish community. So we do a lot of, we adv do advocacy at the federal, state, and local level, um, both policy-wise, budget-wise, speaking out on issues. Um, we also concentrate on building better relationships with other communities in the Baltimore region and across the Jewish communities. We do a lot of Holocaust education and commemoration, Israel education and advocacy, and quite frankly, we also do a lot of anti-Semitism, which I know is what we're talking about today in, in finding ways to educate and counter it. So dr drill down a little for me. When you say BJC does education and outreach to combat anti-Semitism, what are some examples? So it, it ranges 
from everything from organizing community programs with experts on anti-Semitism, a school may call looking to, to do a, a session for parents to better understand anti-Semitism or students. Uh, last month, we went and led a, a, joined a, a noontime lunch and learn with one of the big law firms in town to talk about anti-Semitism with them as part of their, their continuing series on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And then a group from that firm, volunteers came out on a Sunday morning and did a huge fall cleanup of the Holocaust Memorial downtown. I would do a lot of work with the, um, the Hillels on the college campuses, where we see a lot of um, anti-Semitic tension aimed at Jewish students. They sometimes feel under attack. And so we try and educate and also help prepare our high school students in the community for what they may encounter when they go off to college. Local and national Jewish organizations are participating in an initiative called Shine a Light. What is that? As we talk about the holiday of Hanukkah and the, the theme of, of light and lighting the candles for eight nights, we're trying to, to, to focus on anti-Semitism and efforts to combat it and calling it out. It is, uh, you know, combating anti-Semitism is a 12-month-a-year job. What sure. we're doing is all the time. But take the time right now around this holiday when we're all thinking about light and kind of specifically organize some programs and educate and talk about it. You, you may have seen there's some national TV commercials from the, the national effort that are popping up on CNN and other cable stations to um, City Hall is gonna be lit up in the uh, colors of the campaign for the first night of Hanukkah this weekend to educating and talking and making sure that we're not gonna tolerate it wherever it comes from, whether it's from the left, from the right, from our political leaders, from our sports figures, from our online influencers, it's not acceptable. And we need to stand up against that. And and to emphasize, we need to stand up against all hate. It's not just a question of us standing up against anti-Semitism. It's a question of us being allies with every other community that faces hate and that faces hate crimes. We all have to do it together. Tell me more about what kinds of events or activities are happening locally. So locally, this 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 weekend um, at the, the the JCC in Owens Mills, there's a large Hanukkah festival with lights where they'll talk about anti-Semitism. Um, on Friday afternoon, Deborah Lipstadt, the anti-Semitism essentially ambassador in the State House, the well-known historian, is leading a, a large national webinar talking about it. We're trying to to educate both the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community because, candidly, as a Jewish community, we sometimes you hear someone say something, you see something, and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to respond. And so we're trying to help people become more comfortable with it. And also to understand if you feel threatened, don't do anything that's going to jeopardize yourself. But if you feel comfortable, if, if a friend of yours says something that's based in anti-Semitic tropes, even if they're doing it out of, out of ignorance, speak up, tell them, explain it, educate. People want to be informed if they're saying things that are offensive and they don't even know it. That's Howard Libet, who heads the Baltimore Jewish Council. On the record on WYPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about Shine a Light, a national effort to raise awareness about and combat anti-Semitic language and incidents. Howard, the term normalizing anti-Semitism has been seen in the headlines. What does normalizing anti-Semitism mean? Normalizing means we're seeing it from people who we hold up like in respect in our community. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 years old. I never would have imagined I would see the former president of the United States 
dine with people who are openly expressing anti-Semitic ideas and pushing it. It's just, it doesn't compute to see some of the things being said on social media in, in both from the left and the right. I don't, I don't want it, people to think I'm only talking about anti-Semitism from one point of view. People say it, make these comments more and more, and, and whether it's through fatigue of responding every time or just feeling overwhelmed, some of these, the comments stop being called out. It, it used to be when someone crossed the line and said something anti-Semitic in a policy debate or something like that, the condemnation was quick and unanimous. But it's happening so much now that so many times it's going unchecked and becoming almost normalized. That people are, oh, that's that, that's just him saying that again. We'll just let it go. We're not going to take him on. In 2021, the Anti-Defamation League recorded the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents since it began keeping track in 1979. There were more than 2,700 last year. They included assault harassment and vandalism. It was a 34% increase over 2020. Was this a warning bell for organizations like yours? I think it's been going, the last few years have been a warning. We keep seeing numbers edge up. And and what's what's really troubling is kind of a part of those statistics, and the FBI keeps statistics, and the Maryland State Police does, is when you look at hate crimes, and you look at hate crimes motivated by religious bias, 60% of such crimes target the Jewish community. Obviously, the, the biggest category of victims of hate crimes in the United States are, are, are Black Americans. But when you talk about those motivated by religious bias, it is the Jewish community. Even though Jews are just 2% of the Jew- American population, 60% of the hate crimes motivated by religious bias are aimed at Jews. And you, 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 you see things like that, and it's absolutely a warning sign that all of us need to do more to, to educate, to advocate to be better allies with other communities. We all need to stand up together. So So we need to work together. What are you hearing from local Jewish institutions in response to rises in anti-Semitic language and incidents? Are they stepping up security or other precautions? Security is, yeah, it's amazing how much more money synagogues, schools, institutions feel like they have to to spend on security compared to 10 years ago or whatever. I mean, you you don't, uh, virtually every synagogue has um, an, an armed guard whenever there are services on hand. When I grew up, that wasn't needed. Thanks to major investments from our federal and state governments, institutions being able to afford upgraded camera systems, better doors, better locking systems. We are um, constantly offering different trainings and assessments of security to different synagogues and schools. If you remember the, the hostage situation from last January and at the synagogue in Texas, where the rabbi credited the training they had with helping them survive the situation and ultimately escape, we're trying to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to do trainings like that so you feel like you know how to respond if something happens. With all the efforts that you're putting in now and and have been, and still we see this, this rise in anti-Semitic language, do you feel like you're Losing ground? No, it, that's a great question. I, I, I it, it's been a tough year. It's been a tough couple of years. I mean, you think back to the um, the, the horrific um, incident in Pittsburgh at the, at the Tree of Life Synagogue. In the last few years, it, it's been hard between the certainly the high-profile, awful incidents of violence, and I'll, and I'll 
point out the um, the Fourth of July parade shooting this summer was in the you know Jewish suburb of of, of Chicago where I grew up, and it, it happened places where I used to go watch the parade. So it's really it's hit close to home for so many of us. Um, but I continue to believe fundamentally the vast majority of people in our community and in our country don't support hate. And we can't let that small but vocal minority win. We need to stand up. We need to do a better job of educating. We need to, you know, a couple of years ago, we worked with the state superintendent to increase the curriculum requirements about learning about the Holocaust. And we need to help schools implement that now to help students better understand the horrors of the Holocaust, the horrors of anti-Semitism and hate. And if we can do that, if we can do a better job of reaching the next generation, I'm confident we will continue to push hate further and further into the corner. Howard, thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Howard Libet is the executive director of the Baltimore Jewish Council, an agency of the Associated Jewish Federation of Baltimore. He also serves on Maryland's Domestic Terrorism Task Force, which works to combat extremism. We have more information at the On the Record page at WYPR.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. <laughs>